Will you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning once again to the Acts of the Apostles where we are going to be looking together at chapter 7, verses 17 through 36. That's Acts chapter 7, 17 through 36, and you can find that passage on either page 1076 in your pew Bibles or beginning on page 36 in your Acts journals. We are now at the sort of halfway point of Stephen's speech here in Acts chapter 7, given as a response to the question of the high priest as to whether these things were so regarding the accusations that had been leveled against him. Those false accusations were, you will remember, that he had spoken against God, that he had spoken against Moses and the law, and that he had even spoken against the temple. And his answer is not so much of a defense against these false charges as it is a rather lengthy indictment against the foolishness of unbelief. And there's a little bit of irony here as these men of the Sanhedrin accuse Stephen of things they themselves are most guilty of. Stephen has already made the case that they did not understand their own sacred history. He pointed them back to Abraham and to their complete misunderstanding of him and of his life. They misunderstood the promise made by Almighty God to Abraham. And as a result, they had misapplied it to their own lives and to the lives of those around them. Last week we saw Stephen move then from Abraham to Joseph and the patriarchs. And as I said, it really is impossible for us to consider Joseph and the patriarchs without considering God's providence involved in that situation. We have to look at what God is doing in and through them. And we have to walk away with a very deep appreciation, even a, a true sense of awe when we consider the wonderful providence of Almighty God that is on display for us there. God is moving heaven and earth to get his chosen vessels to King Jesus. He controls and he directs all things. And it truly is very comforting for us, beloved, to know that we are in our Father's hand in this way. That He cares for us. That He provides for us. That He, he loves us. That He directs all things for the good of His people. And as we saw last week, Stephen is really doing two things here as he takes them back to the book of Genesis, back to the Joseph narrative recorded there for First, of course, this is a scathing indictment against the wickedness of unbelief. However, it does not just end there with that indictment. It is also, by the grace of Almighty God, an invitation to repentance and life lived in union with Jesus Christ by faith. Faith that God so graciously gives to those whom he's calling through the proclamation of his gospel. Stephen is preaching the gospel here. And it is doing the work of the gospel, driving some through the power of the Holy Spirit into the loving arms of Jesus, even while it is simultaneously 
heaping coals of condemnation upon the heads of those who hate to hear it. And it's safe to assume that both are going on here. It's not hard for us to imagine the anger that is brewing here against Stephen. Stephen is attacking really the foundation of their system of false belief. He's on trial for his life for daring to even speak against Moses. And Stephen goes right to the patriarchs themselves. And he says, in essence, listen, these men were sinners. They were not merely created to be your perfect moral examples of how you ought to live before God. The Sanhedrin and many in Israel had missed this point. And in doing so, they had missed what it means to live for God altogether. And Stephen simply will not allow it. He moves right into this story by saying that the patriarchs were envious. They were jealous. They had malice in their hearts. Malice that led them very quickly to decide to go the way of Cain and murder their brother Joseph in cold blood because they were jealous of him. And Reuben by God's providence, stepped in and talked them instead into selling him into slavery and not killing him. But it's important for you to know they were willing to kill him because they envied him. They were sinners. That's the point. And Stephen takes it a bit further by seeing to it that they, these members of the Sanhedrin, or really anyone else for that matter, that they find themselves in the proper place in this story. Stephen is telling his accusers that they are most certainly not Joseph in this story. They're not the saviors. They're not the heroes. Though certainly some of them feel as if they're saving souls through this very trial they're taking part in. They are not God's chosen vessel of deliverance for his people. They, like Stephen himself, were the brothers in this story. And so too, beloved, are we. We are the ones born in Adam with the curse of sin coursing through our veins. We too are born the natural enemies of Almighty God. We too know something of what it is to have malice in our hearts. We too know what it is to take God's wonderful providence and to turn it into yet another occasion to grumble and complain, to shake our fists at God. We know it, don't we? And yet God, without any merit of ours, only for the sake of Christ, is faithful to his promise. Praise God. God is and always will remain faithful. What Stephen said next is the only reason why we do not have to live in despair over our wicked condition. He said, but God was with Joseph. 
God was with Joseph. God was not limited to some space in Jerusalem. He was in Egypt. He was with his people. God was setting up Joseph as a deliverer of his people and a preserver of his promise. Joseph will, through difficult circumstances, by the providence of Almighty God, come into a position to be the Savior of God's people. And who are those people? Sinners. A long line of them. Sinners like the brothers of Joseph. Sinners like Jacob, their father. Sinners like you and I, beloved. Are you grateful this morning that God saves sinners. Praise be to God that he saves sinners like us. And now in the text before us, Stephen moves to the third example that has been very tragically misunderstood by these men, these members of the Sanhedrin, and for that matter, by many in Israel. And he moves to one whose name has been included in the indictment that was made against him. Stephen now moves to Moses himself. And he shows them how it was God who raised up yet another deliverer, another type of Christ, and the man they call Moses. So if you've not already done so, I would invite you to turn with me again, Acts chapter 7, and follow along as I read from God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word this morning, verses 17 through 36. Hear now the word of our Lord. But when the time of the promise drew near, which God had sworn to Abraham, the people grew and multiplied in Egypt, till another king arose who did not know Joseph. This man dealt treacherously with our people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, And he was brought up in his father's house for three months. But when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended And avenged him, who was oppressed, and struck down the Egyptian. For he supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver them by his hand, but they did not understand. The next day he appeared to two of them as they were fighting, and he tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brethren. Why do you wrong one another? But he who did his neighbor wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? Then at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian where he had two sons. And when 40 years had passed, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. And as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not look. 
Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off of your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge? Is the one God sent to be a ruler and a deliverer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now that you would clear our hearts and minds of the many things in this life that distract us. We acknowledge, Father, our, our sin and our need for forgiveness. We acknowledge our need for your word. And we pray, Father, that through the, the power of your Holy Spirit, that your word would transform us more and more for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Stephen gives us here a pretty thorough explanation of the life of Moses in these verses. By no means is it an exhaustive look at Moses, but certainly he hits the main points. And you probably noticed that he really does cover all of Moses' 120 years of life here. He breaks it down into three 40-year periods of life. The first 40 years covering the time of his birth to the finishing of his Egyptian education in the house of Pharaoh. The next 40 years take him from his exile into Midian until his return to the land of Egypt to usher the children of Israel out of their bondage towards sweet freedom. And the last 40 years being their time from deliverance in the wilderness until his death. Moses, as we know, died, having never entered the land of promise, though he could see it. And there are so many things that we could focus on here. As is usually the case, we will merely scratch the edges of it this morning. It's always my hope that you'll spend some time here mining the treasure uh, that we have here in Acts chapter 7 and in Exodus 2, 3, and 4. For today... I want us to look at this passage and see three primary things going on here with the raising up of the man Moses to deliver God's people from their bondage in Egypt. I want us first to consider here that God prepares his people for deliverance. That's the first thing. Secondly, I want us to look at how God prepares Moses to be that deliverer. And then finally, I'd like us to consider that God does indeed deliver his people again. And he does it with the anticipation of yet a greater deliverance from the hand of an even greater deliverer that is still yet to come. So God prepares his people, God prepares Moses, and God delivers his people. First, let's look at how God prepares his people here for their deliverance. And this would be easy for us to miss here. Stephen is, of course, focusing in on Moses and what he meant to Israel. 
and how he was specifically used of God to deliver them. But God is doing something in more than just Moses. Look at what Stephen says here. But when the time of the promise drew near. Before he gets into the work of the people or into the work of Moses, he reminds them of a couple of things. First, these events are centered upon the promise. That theme runs throughout Stephen's entire answer. We've seen it already and we will certainly see it again. But he brings it up again here for good reason. The people of God had forgotten the promise. Stephen reminded them of it in verses 6 and 7 as he retold this story. All that was happening, all that was taking place in Egypt had been prophesied to Abraham regarding that promise. Look at verses 6 and 7, just as a reminder. But God spoke in this way, that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring them into bondage and oppress them 400 years. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, I will judge, said God, and after that they shall come out and serve me in this place. Stephen is, of course, talking about Genesis 15. And that prophecy is now unfolding around them during the time of Moses. And beloved, Israel should have been looking for it. There is a bit of accusation for the men of the Sanhedrin here. Right? They too, like their fathers, had missed it. 400 years had come since the people of Israel were placed under the bondage of Egypt and the oppression is getting worse. It was ramping up along with the ire of the Egyptians. Why? Well, because God was blessing them despite their miserable circumstances. Even as they suffered under the heavy hand of the Egyptians, they were bearing many children. They were multiplying over the course of their bondage. And keep in mind that we do not know how long they enjoyed the good graces of Egypt. After Joseph died, we know that their numbers were growing. And they started with how many people? Seventy-five. 75 people in all, and now they're at about 600,000 men, just those who are of fighting age. Conservative estimates place their total population to then be upwards of 2 million souls from 75. God is giving them precious life even as they are suffering under the cruel thumb of the Egyptians. And they are suffering. They're being severely oppressed. Literally being worked to death. The Egyptians feared their growing numbers. They feared that if they were invaded by an enemy nation, that the Israelites could join that nation, turn on them with their enemies, and that they would be destroyed. However, oppression did nothing to slow the birth rate in Israel tells you something about who truly it is that gives life, doesn't it? 
So it grew worse. And they decided to start killing the babies. They exposed them to the elements so that they may not live, might not live. And in all this chaos, in all this death and bloodshed, Moses was born. Now, before we get into Moses, I want for us to think about how it was that God prepared his people for their deliverance. What was that preparation? What was that training to live in the blessed freedom that God was about to bring? Do you see it? They suffered. And it was not just a little suffering. We're not just talking about being uncomfortable. They were oppressed, perhaps for 400 years. Real suffering. Many of them undoubtedly cried themselves to sleep each night their bodies failing under the weight of cruel and relentless labor. And they wept over the murder of their babies. They wept that their nation no longer held any significance whatsoever in the eyes of the world. They were identified once as having wealth and land and animals and food and shelter. Now they were just the slaves of Egypt. Why would God in his providence ever allow such suffering? Because he was preparing them for the glory of his deliverance. Do you see that here? They were being prepared by God for glory. They were on the verge of being restored of gaining back an identity, an identity as the children of God. And they were learning to cry out to God and to trust God. You notice they did not just rise up with their great growing numbers and revolt in their their misery. What did they do? They hit their knees in prayer. They cried out to God and he heard their cries. It reminds me of Psalm 107. We read it during our Thanksgiving service on Wednesday night. We see this pattern there of thankfulness for God and His mercy arising out of difficulty and suffering. The people are distressed. They cry out to God in their distress and God hears them and delivers them and they rightly hit their knees in praise. There's that oft-repeated refrain in Psalm 107. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness. And for his wonderful works to the children of men. God was blessing them amid their misery. They were being prepared for God's glory through their suffering. And so God hears them. And he raises Moses to deliver them. And they reject him. So much of this is very familiar, right? Moses and Jesus have much in common here. Moses is a type of Christ. He is pointing them to another that is yet to come who will deliver far, far more than just freedom and land from land and freedom from their oppressors. He will save them from their sins. 
He will restore what the curse has taken away. He will eventually come again and usher in the new heavens and the earth, the new earth where suffering will not exist for the people of God. God is using all these things to show them their desperate need for him and their need for his grace to invade their lives and to make them whole. It should make us pause and consider his own glorious providence in our own situations. Beloved, have you ever been led through the sanctification process only to wonder what God's problem is? To see his providence in your circumstance as really just his harsh judgment rather than his loving kindness. I hope you're all nodding inside. I can tell you I have. And we're reminded here of just how little we see, right? We do not see the end from the beginning. But God controls and directs all things according to his perfect, most holy will. And he knows it all. The beginning from the end, he is working in and through us to bring about his perfect purposes. He was preparing Israel for their glorious redemption. Immediately in the deliverance that Moses brings by the grace of God. But ultimately in the deliverance that his people will receive through the Lord Jesus Christ. God graciously prepares his people for deliverance and glory. Secondly, we see here that God prepares Moses. We've already talked about some of that preparation. He was born into chaos, suffering and death all around him. And yet God in his providence saves him. Stephen says that he was born and he lived in his father's house for the first three months of his life. And I know this one has been so sensationalized by Hollywood that we do not want to think that Moses' parents were doing anything more threatening to Moses than simply tricking Pharaoh's daughter into raising him under the privilege of her father's house. That they had placed him in this cozy little basket that they made to keep him snug and comfortable. Stephen says, though, that he was set out. Moses was exposed. He too was exposed to the elements and to the river. We need to think about this because the elements, the river, the sun, the numerous predators that could thwart the plan of God here, none of them had any power against Moses because this was God's providence. Moses was beautiful to God. And well-pleasing to God. And God saved Moses through the hand of the Pharaoh's daughter. And he received the best education. And he lived under the privilege of Egypt in the Pharaoh's house. He was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in words and deeds. Verse 22. Makes you think, if you know the story of Moses... 
that his excuse for not wanting to go to Pharaoh proved to be quite false, right? Do you remember what he said? Lord, you got to send somebody else. I'm not good with words. Really? Moses knew words. And Moses had deeds. Because Moses had been prepared by God himself to be the deliverer of God's people. And Moses knew it. Stephen said that after Moses executed vengeance upon an Egyptian who was mistreating his fellow Israelite, that Moses supposed that his brethren would understand that God would deliver them by his hand. This is before the burning bush. But they did not. They rejected him. And as soon as Moses was made aware that his crime had indeed been noticed and that he had been rejected by his brethren, he fled into the Midian wilderness where Moses would receive another 40 years of training as a shepherd of his father-in-law Jethro's sheep. We know that Moses married Zipporah and he started a family. But unlike Israel, Moses knew He was watching. Unlike Israel, Moses was learning patience in his suffering, not bitterness. Beloved, we need to consider ourselves here. What do you take away from your difficulties in this life? I'm not prying. I'm preaching to myself as well. What do you take away when it feels as if the hand of God is against you? Moses took God at his word, like his fathers Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He knew that God had promised, and he waited. Please understand, Moses was flawed. He was a sinner too. And his story is mingled with his trust of God and with his sin, which ultimately kept him outside of the promised land. However, God comes to him. In the back of the desert in the wilderness at the Mount of Horeb, God makes himself known again to Moses. He came to him in a flame of fire in a bush in the wilderness of Mount Sinai, the very place where Moses would receive the law of God. And God spoke to him there. And Moses, knowing who it was that spoke, feared even looking directly into the flame. God told him, remove your sandals. The place where you stand is holy because God is there. And he tells Moses, Moses, it is time. I will deliver upon my promise freedom for my people. I've heard the cries of my people. They have been prepared. You, Moses, are prepared. And it, is, and it of course, brings us to the, the final point I want to make this morning. God says, I will deliver my people. And you will usher them from bondage to freedom in the land that I swore to their fathers. Again, 
Beloved, you simply cannot miss the gospel here. From slavery to sweet freedom. From death to life. From sin and despair and hopelessness to being made perfect and righteous by God himself. Yes, God delivered his people through Moses. God did it all. We need to know that. Moses certainly did not make this happen. The people were no help in their own deliverance. They only got in the way. Egypt exerted everything they had to try and stop it, and they never had a chance. Again, Psalm 2. Why do the heathen nations rage? Why do they stand up and challenge the God who is? Why? Who can stand against the Almighty? No one can. Nothing can. God will deliver Israel despite Moses, despite Israel, and despite Egypt. Because he alone is God. And he will do it with the deliverer that at this moment in history was still yet to come. Jesus would come and he would save his people from the bondage of their sin. Not because of them. Not because of their efforts. Despite them. Despite us, beloved. He came and he gave us life eternal. He condescended. He came down from a place of glory. He put on flesh, sin accepted. He sympathizes with our weaknesses. He knows the devastating effects of the fall that we are all born with. He kept every single aspect of the perfect, holy law of God for us, being himself its very fulfillment. And he willingly laid down his life that we may live in him by faith forever. All of this is driving towards that wonderful truth, and we have to see it. Beloved, does it make your heart sing? In God's story of redemption, you and I are not the heroes. We're not Joseph. We're not Moses. Even they themselves are not perfect enough to deliver us, to redeem us, to reconcile us to the Father for eternity. They too long for redemption that is bigger than what they are living as God's chosen instruments. They too long for Jesus Christ. They too long for the substance standing behind every single shadow. Moses will go on to deliver the people of God. He'll give them God's holy and perfect law. And that law will teach them much more about who they are and what they so desperately need. They need a righteousness foreign to themselves. They're not capable of ever producing it. The law only shows them their failure again and again and again. It is their tutor 
their schoolmaster to drive them to Jesus. And it is ours. You know, one of the many things we see here in this answer of Stephen is the utter foolishness of self-righteousness. Do you see it here? These men of the Sanhedrin even feel righteous in ending this man, Stephen, who would dare to speak ill of Moses and the law. They are okay killing one who would be so bold in his foolishness as to dare to speak ill of the temple. And Stephen is pointing out to them in the heat of all of it that they truly know nothing about any of it. And beloved, I want to tell you something this morning, as plainly as I am able, if you believe that this morning, that you in and of yourself are cleaner than most, that you're better than some of these that you must worship each week, if you look down your noses at those who by God's providence have been called to walk a different path from your own, please listen to me this morning. Please make certain that the promise that you derive your hope from finds its origins in the precious gospel of Jesus Christ and nothing less. Please search your heart this morning to make certain that you truly are the biggest, most notorious sinner you know. Measure yourself. Not by your clean and pretty life. Not by the standards that you have set for your most high majesty of yourself. But by the holy perfect law of God and see for certain that you have been found wanting. And then run to Jesus for life. Run to him alone for his righteousness. The only righteousness that will ever suffice. Because God, in his mercy, has already delivered sinners. But not the perceived righteous who think that they do not need much in the way of saving. Your family line will not be enough. Your years of service will not be enough. Sitting as the high priest on the Sanhedrin will not be enough. These men had deceived themselves. Have you? Christianity is all about the grace of Almighty God invading your life and accomplishing through Jesus Christ what you cannot and you will not ever accomplish on your own. True, perfect righteousness. By faith. Faith that God gives. He so unites you to the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus that you are made perfect in him. And he is all you'll ever need. And Stephen has been building up to this here. He's about to really let these men have it. It's going to cost him his life. They will see clearly that as he tells them that God did all this deliverance through Moses But the people rejected him. They said to him, who made you ruler and judge over us? Just like these men, 
have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ. Some will hear it and give up on themselves. And they'll run to Jesus to find comfort, peace, and joy for eternity. But others will begin to self-righteously roll up their sleeves and pick up stones and act upon the malice in their hearts and become condemned by it. Beloved, it is impossible for us to avoid the gospel of Jesus Christ in the book of Acts. I hope you've seen that. And for many of us, it will be tremendously encouraging. And perhaps for some of us, it will provoke something else. To you this morning, I'm asking, why do you rage? Will you stand against this God? A God who orchestrates this kind of deliverance? A God who so truly holds the world and all creatures in his hand that without his will they will not so much as move? Why would anyone do that? Beloved, the time of salvation is now. Give up on your worthless kingdom. And join the risen and reigning king in the big sky kingdom of almighty God. Lay down your burdens. Run to Jesus. And find a reason to enjoy your few and difficult days upon this earth. While you eagerly await the return of your king. Sing his praises this morning knowing that truly Jesus has paid it all. Will you come? Beloved, I hope that we will, because what awaits us is ultimately a glory in his presence that we can hardly even fathom in these finite fallen minds. But now, we have the witness of his word that he is with us, that he loves us, that he has redeemed us, and that we now have every blessing of the Lord Jesus Christ. What more do we need as God's people to be prepared to live lives that truly are sacrifices of praise?